Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's the 23rd of April, 2013, and Jim Popham is our special guest. Welcome, Jim. Hi, Steve. So glad to have you here. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. This busy slide details the worldwide virtual events that we hold uh, that are free for educators and are uh, based on educators helping teach each other. We had the School Leadership Summit in March. All of those recordings are up at schoolleadershipsummit.com. If you're going to ISTE, the large educational technology show, we have a shadow program, a series of events that take place kind of on the fringes of ISTE called ISTE Unplugged that start with an all-day unconference called Hack Education. Coming up in July is our worldwide STEM Plus or STEM X conference, and then the Future of Libraries conference for the third year in the fall, and then, of course, the five-day, 24-hour-day global education conference in November. More information at web20labs.com. Coming up on this interview series on Thursday night, Andreas Schleicher from the OECD is going to talk to us about what we can learn from international data. John Hunter comes back to talk about his book, World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements. Peter Gray on Free to Learn. Um, more there you'll see. Matt Hearn on de-schooling was rescheduled. Matt had um, written down the wrong time and felt terribly apologetic, but we'll get him back on the show. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded in full Blackboard form and an MP3. Vivian Stewart and Posse Salberg talked to us about Finland, international um, benchmarking and uh, the use of those international tests for thinking about improving education. Elliot Washer and Charles Majowski talked to us about leaving to learn, uh, school internships, getting students out of the school in order to improve their learning. Anyway, lots up there, hopefully something that will be of interest to you. Those of you who are in the studio audience now can let us know where you're participating from. Look for the star to the left of the map. You're going to click on that twice, and then you're going to click on the map. I was telling Jim I'm in Udaipur, India right now. I see Coach Carol's in the room, I think. Maybe. Oh, a different Carol. Um, I spent a, a week with Coach Carol in Australia, which was delightful. But now looking at schools in India and learning quite a bit. Santa Cruz, Mexico, Tasmania, delightful. Illinois, Pennsylvania, Arkansas. Please feel free to keep posting those messages in the chat as we move forward. And sure glad to have you wherever you're listening from or if you're listening to the recording. There is a Mighty Bell space for this show. Mighty Bell is a place for curating content. We use it to keep track of conversation after a show. So if you want to continue to discuss the ideas that you hear about in this interview, you can go to that Mighty Bell space that I've just posted in the chat. So Jim, this was really a fascinating um, opportunity for me to get to know your work. I, I'm, I've never been a teacher. I've been a, a parent who homeschooled children off and on. Um, you know, I grew up in a, a household that was academically oriented. My father was dean of admissions at Stanford and then at Princeton. So there's a history of high-stakes testing in, in my family. Um, I learned so much about testing that maybe I should have known 
but uh, wasn't readily a, at my fingertips. Do people express appreciation to you for just being kind of clear about describing testing? Well, sometimes they kind of genuflect before me, uh, but ordinarily, <laughs> I just get I, I, I ordinarily just just get a yes. I enjoyed the book. I've got to tell you something, Steve. This is a kind of intriguing development. I, I looked for the first time at the title uh, that we have here, and it, it's, it's the truth about testing. You've apparently read a book I wrote called "The Truth About Testing." I read that, and I read "Unlearned Lessons." Ah, well, so so you've read something that uh, uh, was. Uh, uh, I didn't realize we were talking about, but I'm, I'm willing to. Actually, I thought we'd be talking about a new book that I just got, that I wrote uh, a little over an hour ago. My first copy of a new book called Evaluating America's Teachers. Uh, and I thought that was going to be our focus, but, but that's fine. Uh, could I tell you a story about uh, one of the books, uh, The Truth About Testing? It's a true story. Yeah, absolutely. And we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. I didn't have access to the new book, so in my preparation I've read things that okay. you've written. But the goal here is to have a conversation mm -hmm. about what you care about. Well, we, we certainly will deal with whatever you'd like and what I'd like to, but I've got to tell you about that <clears throat> my first book. This is a book I wrote for uh, ASCD, uh, and it was the first book of, I think, five that I uh, wrote for that um, uh, publisher, that organization. Uh, and some books you write and you, and you think they're OK. And some books you write and you, you really like them. <clears throat> and I like that book. Uh, I was trying to describe, and as you've probably seen uh, uh, from looking at the book, uh, the fundamentals about uh, uh, testing that were important. And so I, w I went down to a conference uh, in San Diego uh, that had been sponsored by ASCD, a huge conference, uh, something like 1,400 people <clears throat> were attending. And I'd been invited to be the middle speaker between three speakers who were uh, well-known. And, and I was the middle speaker. And so I, I show up the first day. And no one knows who I am. And I wanted to listen to what uh, people were talking about. I generally like to do that. And so I was listening in the speeches. But then I went to the bookstore. And, and there in the bookstore, ASCD really hustles their books very hard. And so I went into the bookstore. And I saw a woman uh, looking at that book that I had written, The Truth About Testing. Uh, I said over her shoulder, I said, good book. You ought to buy a copy. I, I was not really focused exclusively on royalties there, but I just couldn't pass up the chance uh, <laughs> to say something good about it. So she, uh, she didn't turn to me, but she said, do you know the author? Well, this is one of those moments, Steve, that come to you uh, occasionally in life, and you dare not pass them up. Uh, so I said, remember, she can't, I haven't spoken at the conference. She isn't looking to my name badge. She doesn't know who the devil I am. And so I said, know him. I've been sleeping with his wife for the last 20 years. And, 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 and I did. It's a true story. And, and in all credit to her, she didn't turn or seem ruffled. <laughs> but after a while, she did look at me, saw my name badge, and figured it out. But there was a kind of a golden moment. Anyhow, I like that book. You know, there are, you're a good storyteller. I, I don't know how you came up with a line like that that fast. But there was another story in the book where I, I remember I laughed out loud. I, I'll have to see if it comes back to me, but that's an enjoyable part of your writing. Okay. So tell us about the new book, and let's try and weave the threads together. OK, and they, they certainly mesh. Uh, 
the new book is about teacher evaluation, and uh, its full title is Evaluating America's Teachers: Colon uh, Mission Possible? Question uh, mark. And I, this is not an arena that uh, you would be particularly interested in, but uh, in America right now, we've had a tremendous upsurge of interest in teacher evaluation. Uh, because of two federal initiatives. They're not laws, but they're initiatives where uh, the federal government wants to reform schools, and one of the key components of that reform is to be the establishment of more rigorous uh, teacher evaluation programs by states. So in 2009, and then again in 2011, uh, two initiatives came out where in order to get money <coughs> or to get um, uh, to be allowed to escape from some of the accountability requirements, States had to agree to come up with a rigorous uh, teacher evaluation program, uh, among which uh, there were features such as you had to use student test scores as a, quote, significant factor, end quote, among multiple measures in judging the quality of teachers. Well, this is very different stuff, Steve. We've never had that kind of a requirement for teacher evaluation. And as a consequence, many educators across the nation, 40-odd uh, states are, are dealing with this now, are soon going to be visited by teacher evaluation systems that are very demanding. Well, this, of course, does mesh really well with at least the, the material that I read. Um, I, it was very helpful to me to have an understanding of uh, sort of how testing began, and I was not familiar with the um, Army Alpha and World War One. I. I guess I sort of had some passing knowledge. But do you want to describe kind of what happened there? It's, a, it's an important <clears throat> development, and I'm glad you spotted that, because it shows you are uh, able to read with comprehension, Steve. You get A plus on reading so far, because <laughs> uh, that is true. That is truly a pivotal uh, notion. It's, it was in World War One, not World War Two, World War One, that we found ourselves engaged in a conflict uh, larger than any the U.S. had ever engaged in, and uh, people in the army, frankly, did not know how to identify uh, lieutenants. Second lieutenants would go over and lead the troops, and <clears throat> they'd had a really bad uh, time of it in the early part of the war, so they went to the American Psychological Association. And uh, the president was a guy named Robert Yerkes, and he appointed a committee. They went to Vineland Training School in Vineland, New Jersey. And in seven days and seven nights, uh, they created the Army Alpha, and then they rested. Uh, and and the, the Army Alpha was a group administrable intelligence test. It had uh, items in it that uh, were um, mental problems of one sort or another, quantitative, uh, qualitative, verbal problems. And based on this, you were able to rank uh, examinees, that is, recruits, uh, according to their relative ability. Uh, someone would uh, be ranked at the 96th percentile, that is, in relationship to a, a group, uh, the norm group who'd taken the test earlier or someone at the 54th percentile. And the whole essence of that approach, Steve, was to spread people out in order that you could spot the very best ones. Well, it worked wonderfully well. Uh, in World War I, it was administered to about 1,750,000 recruits. And it really uh, did the job beautifully. Uh, 
the people who uh, uh, performed very well uh, were sent off to officer training programs. The people who scored uh, lower were, were sent to the trenches to fight the war. It worked well. Now, what's fascinating is this is an aptitude test, purely, simply an aptitude test designed to spread people out to see who has the aptitude to do well in officer training programs. But after the war is over, after World War I is over, all of a sudden you discover that testing organizations in this country are producing achievement tests, not aptitude tests. These are tests designed to measure how much you know, uh, what your skills are, what your knowledge happens to be. And as a consequence, that model was predicated on the same kind of comparative interpretation model that the alpha had been devised for and became so prevalent in this country. And since that time, the majority of educational testing in the United States of America has been focused on comparative interpretations just like the alpha. So the, that was, um, there were two phrases that you used that really were, were helpful to me. One was this fine-grained comparison idea, and the other was the score spread. You've touched on the comparison, and you mentioned score spread, but describe what score spread is and why that becomes so important in terms of understanding how these tests are created. Again, that's a very uh, sharp insight because uh, once you realize that the, the, the tests that we've been using in education since that era, uh, it's almost 100 years now, once you realize that they have been <clears throat> uh, rooted in the notion of comparative score interpretation, uh, then you realize you have to do that efficiently. And, and since we test kids for, oh, roughly an hour, maybe less, you, you have to have uh, items that do a reasonable job in spreading out those uh, uh, test takers. Uh, because if indeed the scores were too bunched up, then you could not make the fine-grained comparisons that are at the heart of Army Alpha testing. And so what indeed you must do is make sure that the items produce uh, total test scores where you have some high scores, some low scores, and lots of middle scores. You have to have score spread. No score spread, you can't have comparative interpretations. Now, here's where the plot thickens. In order to get score spread with a relative handful of items, you know, maybe 40, 50 items, that's all. How do you do that? Well, you make darn sure that those items produce reasonable differences um, among the test takers. Well, uh, what kinds of reasonable differences? One of the ways is to make sure that an item is linked to students' socioeconomic status. In, or the, in other words, to make sure that the kids who come from an affluent background are more likely to answer it correctly than kids who come from a less affluent background. All the people who create these tests don't set out to, to stick it to the poor kids. But what they do is they have items in their tests that, in fact, are linked to socioeconomic status. And socioeconomic status is a nicely spread out variable. And as a consequence, you can be almost assured that if you have an SES-linked item in there, that indeed you will get score spread and Army Alpha testing wins the day again. Now, the problem is when you have achievement tests, achievement tests, employing uh, SES-linked items, you get the score spread, 
it works like a charm, but it doesn't measure how well those children have been taught. What it measures is what they brought to school, not what they learned there. So there's this socioeconomic status that ends up uh, fulfilling the need of, for score spread. Um, there's also, you, you discussed this inherited academic aptitude, which also can fulfill that, the need for score spread. But as you say, these are unrelated to the actual value of the instruction. So in this new federal initiative, um, is this sort of the, your same drum that you need to be banging here, which is if we don't understand assessment, this is going to drive all of the wrong policies? Well, you're, 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 you're right. It's, it's bongo time again, for sure. And, and uh, the reason is, and I'm glad you mentioned the intellectual aptitudes uh, issue. I was trying to be succinct with my jabber so you'd have your next question up and running. But <laughs> the truth is, it's either items linked to, uh, items linked to SES, uh, socioeconomic status, or items that are linked to inherited academic aptitude. I mean, uh, quite clearly, uh, kids are born with dissimilar smarts. Uh, it'd be easier for educators if they were all born with identical uh, academic aptitudes. But uh, when it comes to uh, verbal smarts or uh, or uh, quantitative smarts, they they vary. I have uh, four children. Uh, it was my Catholic period. Uh, and and uh, my daughter is is remarkably good uh, verbally, uh, but not uh, all that good uh, when it comes to quantitative things. And the boys are very good quantitatively, not as good verbally. So kids differ. Now, if you can link an item in your test to kids' inherited uh, academic aptitude, then you again get score spread. So. Academic aptitude, just like SES, produces score spread, but is not related to how well kids have been taught in school. Now, along comes teacher evaluation time. And the federal uh, architects of this particular uh, program say you must use student performance, test performance, and that must count as a significant factor. I think fully 10 states now are requiring that students' test performance count for at least 50%. 50% or more of the way you evaluate a teacher each year is supposed to come from uh, students' test scores. Now, if the test, in fact, is one of these that contains many items linked to SES or to aptitude, those tests measure the students who wander through the door, not how well they're taught once they get inside that school. So the idea of using these kinds of tests to judge teachers is not only unsound, it's almost immoral. So all of these teacher evaluation programs popping up around the nation, if they use the wrong kinds of tests, Steve, they're going to come up with some terrible decisions about students. Uh, there's two me, things that I would want to clarify here. The first is most of us believe that tests somehow reflect successful instruction. And, and part of what was so valuable to me was understanding that, that that's not really true, right? Well, 
Well, it's not necessarily true. Uh, in, you could build a test that was designed to measure how well kids were taught, but in the and majority I want to get to your own history exactly and your right own company that was doing this because I think that's sort of a part of the story. I guess the second piece for me that, that I want to sort of focus on for a moment is the motivation of those creating the test and using the test for these purposes. You know, the idea that they're bringing in um, socioeconomic status questions and inherited academic aptitude is, is I don't think you believe this is a malicious attempt to uh, create problems, but you're saying this, if I hear you right, you're saying this is just something they have to do in order to have the test provide the kind of data that they're being asked for? You're exactly right. It's, it's uh, I, I guess the way to, to think of it is that the overriding conceptualization of educational testing in this nation has been guided by the kind of thinking that brought us the Army Alpha. Okay, so you, you got to get your head around that notion. We're, what we're trying to do here is create tests that allow us to compare test takers. That's the mission. Now, to do that well, you must have score spread. And to get score spread, you don't set out malevolently to penalize the poor or the less uh, able. Uh, what you try to do is to produce score spread. As it turns out, however, one of the most efficient ways to do that is to have items in the test that do not measure how well children have been taught. And that's how you get in this kind of a bind. So, so that's fundamentally what people have to recognize. Is it possible to create a test that indeed would be, we call it sensitive to instruction, would be instructionally sensitive? Yes, it would. But are the people who are creating those tests even aware of this? No, they've been trained in traditional psychometric, that's measurement talk for a ritzy way of saying how you build tests, they've been trained how to do this in an army alpha kind of way, and that's how they do it. It's the accepted practice. It's, it's fine if you want to spread out examinees. It's fine if you want to compare test takers, and there's a role for that. You say your father was involved as an admission officer uh, at Stanford. Well, if this is the case, there are moments when you do want to spread people out. You want to take the cream of the crop. You don't want to take everyone. That's fine. But it's not the way to judge the quality of schooling. And right now, thousands, if not millions, of teachers will be judged, their quality, based on tests not intended to serve that, so that function. Becomes and they don't do it at all of well. This need for really understanding assessment. Right, our, our ability to understand it and to talk about it allows us to ask for, demand, um, discuss policy that relates to assessments and and how they're used. But I also hear in your in the at least in the material that I wrote that we really need to understand assessments because they can be a very powerful tool for helping students and teachers to assess how the learning is going. You're exactly right, and that, and that's one of the uh, the interesting developments of the last oh uh, a decade or two, uh, and, and that is uh, uh, an activity uh, generally known these days as formative assessment. Now, formative assessment 
is really a process by which you use uh, tests during the ongoing instructional uh, uh, enterprise uh, to verify how well kids uh, are, are doing and uh, teachers then make adjustments if the kids aren't doing sufficiently well. This may seem like common sense to you, but it's not done very often uh, in this nation or elsewhere. And in 1998, two British researchers uh, published a review of the use of classroom assessments to improve instructional quality. And in this particular review, uh, they supplied convincing evidence that it really works and works very well. Uh, and so one way you use uh, tests uh, cleverly to improve the caliber of kid learning is you use them as part of the formative assessment process. And, and that's a very effective way to do it. Another way is you set out clearly the targets that you think are appropriate. And those targets, if they're well described, uh, can provide uh, terribly useful uh, destinations uh, for instruction. I, I guess I'd reduce it to something as fundamental, Steve, as an ends means paradigm. You know, uh, as human beings, we uh, identify certain ends that we want to accomplish, and then we uh, identify means that we will use to try to accomplish those ends. Now, obviously, if you're unclear about what the target is, you're not going to come up with means apt to be successful very often. And in much the same way, if you have tests, that clarify in a way that people understand it, that educators and indeed students and students' parents will know where you're heading. Right now, we are in the midst of, a, of an era in this country that will be dominated by something called the Common Core State Standards. Those are curricular aims that have been approved by something like 40 plus states. And, and those uh, curricular aims, if they're well clarified, can prove remarkably useful in designing instruction and then using the formative assessment process along the way to change bad instruction. Uh, at good one and so point, on. you talk about um, when you're talking about the um, the very clear nature of what formative assessment can do that it's just that, that everybody should be doing it, and then you you describe it like having a cure for the common cold, but people not actually taking it or implementing it. Um, why do you think that is? And, and why is there such a focus on the means rather than the ends? Well, <clears throat> uh, I've got to tell you, before we go on, this will be called uh, en route assessment. I, I'm assessing the, the caliber of your questions, and they are simply first rate. Uh, I mean, you you do seem to focus pretty hard on what's most important, and I guess that's why you've been doing this for more than a half an hour. Okay, uh, the, the 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 problem is you've got this powerful technique where there is research ratification, saying, hey, you use this teachers, and you're going to get good results. And you say to yourself, why on earth aren't people using it? Uh, how can this be? The fact is that when uh, the teachers are first educated <clears throat> in teacher education programs, and when they get out and learn from the people who are out in the field, what we tend to focus on is what we do with kids. 
We focus on the means employed in class. We focus on process. Uh, if you think about most accreditation associations, when they're judging the quality of schools to make sure they're good enough, they focus on what goes on in the classroom. Only recently have we seen some accreditation associations start to look at student results. That, that may seem astonishing to judge a school without looking at how well it teaches kids to do things, but that's in fact what we have done in this country. And so there's a, a kind of an, a, a whole culture of attention to process, not to consequence. In part, this is my guess, in part, I think one of the reasons we're so loath to look at consequence is it's threatening. If you set forth what you are going to hope to accomplish with kids and measure at the end of instruction whether or not you have, there's threat there. There is real threat. And as a consequence, it would be a lot easier uh, just to focus on, oh, here's what I did, here's what I covered, here's the content I treated, and so on, the pages in the book that I covered, and not look at the consequences. So in order to get teachers to embrace the formative assessment process, a process that works so well, what we need to do is make it attractive to them, make it in the best interest of the teacher to use something that simultaneously turns out to be in the best interest of the child. And this is doable. This is doable, particularly in this era when teacher evaluation is going to be so heavily dependent on students' test scores, and not just on students' test scores on statewide tests, but also on, state, uh, on the students' uh, performance on teacher-made tests. In other words, if greater learning can be promoted and measured, then teachers will look better, be evaluated more positively. And so this is a golden moment, this moment when uh, we can make it in the best interest of the teacher so what to are the consequences if we don't figure that out? A continuation of uh, less than uh, less quality in our schools that we want. Uh, I think uh, I have a good friend, uh, David Berliner, uh, who just uh, published a piece uh, earlier today and sent me a copy of it. And David claims, I think with some sound justification, that uh, the crisis in American schools is overrated and indeed manufactured. And that we don't have to worry about China uh, because they've got their own problems and, and so on. And, and what he's saying is that it's not as bad as all that. Well, even David, however, would say it can be made better. It can be made better. And those of us who are in education and, and, and we do not achieve what we could get from those kids, we do a terrible thing. I, I used to be a philosophy major as an undergraduate. And Aristotle said the, the greatest metaphysical evil was uh, unactualized potency, which is unachieved potential. So you got a kid sitting in that classroom. This kid could be something pretty special. And the instruction the child receives does not uh, allow that to blossom. We'll have more uh, unblossomed potential unless we make it better. Uh, this is this is a very special time. We have these down. brand new curricular aims that are supposed to govern what happens in many uh, states, in the Common Core state standards, and we've also got 
Uh, we've also got a teacher evaluation program uh, that is going to force many teachers to think hard about how they produce evidence of their own quality. These are special moments, and unless we take advantage of them, we'll have same old, same so, old. So, Jim, there might be a slight slowdown in your internet because all of us heard your voice speed up to catch up, and I, I spoke over you. I apologize for that. I thought you had finished the thought. Um, I, I want to talk about what individual teachers can do because I think you give some really valuable advice. But before doing so, I wonder if you might tell us what you tried to do or did with your testing company during the period of time that you were running it and, and how you um, looked at uh, credible evidence of instructional effectiveness. Well, I guess, Steve, you'd uh, first have to know that uh, I never took any coursework in graduate school uh, about testing. I had no interest in testing at all. Uh, took a doctorate at Indiana University and uh, <clears throat> never took a single course in measurement. I just wanted to teach uh, prospective teachers how to teach children better. And, and, and then I discovered somewhere along the way that as the the stakes associated with testing rose, that is, as we began to have tests which were used to award high school diplomas if kids didn't uh, achieve a certain level of proficiency, uh, we didn't award them high school diplomas. All of a sudden, those tests became truly high stakes tests. And with that, the tests began to influence dramatically uh, the nature of uh, instruction. Now, in 1963, fully 50 years ago this year, a man named Robert Glaser had introduced the notion of criterion referenced measurement, where in contrast to Army Alpha uh, measurement, which he identified as norm referenced measurement, because you reference the performance of a test taker back to that of a normative group, you know, like the 43rd percentile. Now, Glaser said, when instruction is working well, and it could be, um, when it works well, you have a reduction of score spread. And with that reduction of score spread, you face a situation where traditional Army Alpha testing doesn't work because you don't have the kids spread out anymore. And so what he said we ought to do is we ought to focus on uh, having tests that reference the performance of the test taker to a clearly defined class of skills or knowledge. And so what you did is you defined your skills very well, call it the criterion behavior. The kid took a test, and then you referenced the kid's performance to that class of criterion behavior. You might say, for example, uh, that of the 500 <clears throat> tough-to-spell words in our district spelling list, the child has mastered 79% of them. That would be a criterion reference interpretation uh, rather than comparing it to other kids. Well, that being the case, those kinds of tests, criterion reference tests, could be used not only to guide instruction, but could be used more accurately to evaluate its quality. And so I started writing about it. And after writing about it for almost 10 years, uh, I finally realized that uh, no testing companies were going to do this kind of thing. And so I set out to establish a small testing company where we would produce criterion reference tests. And I had the experience of 
essentially moonlighting while I was at UCLA uh, with a testing company. Uh, and we designed uh, high stakes tests for approximately a, a dozen states around the nation. And I learned a lot about testing. You ended up having to close that business down fairly quickly, right? Well, it wasn't all that quick, <clears throat> but it took a while. And then when we were bidding on projects, um, for example, State X uh, wanted to have a new uh, test of, uh, oh, let's say, 10th um, uh, grade students or 8th grade students. And we would receive a request for proposals, and we would submit a bid. Uh, and because I was uh, in Los Angeles, you know, we had a staff of about 35. <clears throat> and they were uh, bright, really smart people. Uh, and uh, they could write well, and they could think well. Uh, but I had to pay them pretty well. Um, uh, and as a consequence, when we put in a bid, uh, uh, it, it was a reasonable middle-of-the-road bid. But the testing companies against which we were bidding uh, came in bidding zero. Uh, that is, uh, let's say uh, our company put in a bid for $220,000. Uh, they came with a bid of zero. And the reason was, uh, they could afford to take on that test development project because if they got the contract, they had enough peripheral products like study guides or extra tests or textbooks or things of that sort. And so once they had their foot in the door, it was profitable for them to stay in. We didn't have any of those things. And after I think about three uh, projects in a row where I went to the trouble of Whomping up a really first-rate proposal and then ending up losing to a a, a, a do-it-for-free yeah, bidder. The, the, the I think that story led me to really money. wonder about uh, sort of systemically how you would fix something like that, um, and probably not coincidentally, talking to Passy Salberg from Finland. Um, would it be fair to say that there's some importance in separating out the uh, research and policy decision making on education from the financial interests? Well, I think it's uh, a, a world greatly to be desired, but uh, not a, a trivial undertaking. Uh, uh, many of the organizations now producing tests in America some of which are controlled in Great Britain, uh, Pearson, for example, they have enormous resources. And, uh, and things are going pretty well for them right now because there's so much testing going on. So it's very tough to buck those outfits. Uh, yes, it would be better. Uh, so in the, in the end of the it, truth uh, about testing, lifetime. which is now 12 years old, maybe, you have some action options. Are those a good way to look at how educators might address this federal initiative and the rigorous teacher evaluation based on student test scores. Is that advice that you would currently give? Well, Steve, in the first place, I'm going to need you to remind me what advice I gave there. But uh, in the second place, things that I write are almost eternal. Um, and so, uh, once you regard the the, te the book as holy writ, uh, then clearly 
they, they, they still work. But let, let me ask you. Uh, oh, that's fine. Well, the first several all revolve around understanding assessment and then helping to teach others. So it's, um, I, I would guess that, um, I don't think you, you put it in this order, but you know, number one would be to use formative assessment well within your own classroom. You know, the next would be to help uh, others in your profession understand assessment, and then it's to help administrators or decision makers, it's to help parents, and it's to help legislators that you sort of expand out into increasingly trying to have an impact on the understanding and dialogue around testing. Well, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, 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 I wish uh, I wish you could. Uh, you're an Indian now, but if you could uh, uh, go around my, I could write your run in my pocket for a few days. You would discover that I'm still strumming that same guitar chord. Uh, earlier today, for example, I, I work with two people. We're going to be making a presentation uh, back in St. Louis uh, in, in in June. The focus of the presentation is assessment literacy, uh, how to promote it. Um, uh, later on in in, uh, in May, I'm going to be meeting with the National Assessment Governing Board and proposing to them specifically the National Assessment Governing Board, which is a the group that oversees uh, the test we call NAEP, National Assessment of Educational Progress. I'm going to be encouraging the National Assessment Governing Board to take on a project uh, to promote assessment literacy among citizens. Uh, parents uh, of school-aged children and students themselves. Uh, now, l let me explain the reason for this. If you were to ask me the following question, if I were Steve, and I said, Jim, tell me what you think is the reason we are in the bad shape we are currently in right now in American schools, I would respond to you this way, and politely, of course. Here, Steve, is the answer to your question. The reason I think we're in bad shape in American schools is that we have made a series of mistaken judgments, mistaken decisions based on our misunderstanding about educational assessment. We have allowed, for example, schools to be judged on the basis of their students' performance on tests ill-suited for that purpose. And we did that because we didn't know any better. Educators have allowed Army Alpha tests to be used in judging their quality. It is absurd. And, and so as a consequence, I really believe, Steve, that if we would have only made better decisions based on assessment results, we would have had a better educational system. Ergo, what you have to do is you have to promote more knowledge not about the exotics of educational testing, but about the fundamental notions. And, and they're not all that many, 15, 20. If, if, if uh, Americans understood those 15 or 20 potent notions of educational testing, we'd be in so much better shape. So yes, I continue to believe that some form of understanding you, At least in what I read, you did a really nice job of saying hey, we have some responsibility here for not having spoken up and figured this out. But you also kind of, uh, admit your own uh, path and, and learning uh, and that you weren't really fully aware of this. Um, 
Okay, I'm going to shift gears for slightly here and ask a question that, that I brought up before the interview you started. But I'm I'm interested in how you personally kind of resolve the issue of the quality of instruction, assessment, and learning, and the uh, things that are being learned. And I told you that I was visiting a school for children of a leprosy colony in, uh, here in India, and that I could think of all of these ways in which the learning could be improved. But the things that they were learning were, were very removed from the practical realities of their lives. There's no, no information about agriculture or um, craftsmanship or trade skills. Uh, um, how do you reconcile improving a system and the actual end goals of the system? If, if you have a if you have a powerful tool, you have to worry about the way it's used. If you uh, create a uh, scalpel, uh, you can save lives or you can kill folks with it. The, the more potent a tool is, the more desperate it is that it be aimed in the right direction and and therefore, if schools are ineffectual, tests are stupid, no one is learning one thing or the other thing, who cares? But if we want a better situation, if we want good instruction, properly assessed instruction, then it's imperative we aim it at the right outcomes. Now, what happened with the emergence of the Common Core State Standards was that there was evidence and a substantial amount that some of our states were pursuing curricular aims not sufficiently demanding. They were having kids learn stuff that wasn't as challenging as the kids should have been learning. And as a consequence of this, those children were being educationally shortchanged. So the Common Core State Standards uh, fostered by some foundation money and a couple of organizations working pretty hard at it, came up with what they believed would be more demanding curricular targets, and those curricular targets um, would be uh, appropriate for uh, as many states who bought in, and all but a few states have indeed uh, accepted the Common Core State Standard. So what we see in this country is an attempt to have more challenging targets that are consonant with today's reality, not yesteryears. And, and I think that's fundamentally the way you have to do it, Steve. You have to aim at uh, powerful targets when indeed you have a powerful instructional system. And we need to work on both ends of it. But if we, if we ever get a good, strong instructional system, to be aiming at paltry targets uh, would be unprofessional. There was a point in the book when you, you talk about the value of assessments for learning, both to the teachers and the students. And it reminded me of an interview I did recently with John Hattie on visible learning. Um, what is your personal sense about the degree of agency students should have in terms of deciding what to study? Well, it, it's interesting. I, I told you I got a copy of uh, my book just uh, 
uh, an hour ago, the new book, and uh, and the first uh, quote is uh, from John Hattie. I will not read it to you aloud, but it really is good. Anyhow, uh, uh, John's a, uh, a friend I've known for a number of years and one of our uh, prominent leaders in the field of education. And, and he, as is the case with many people outside of the U.S., uh, seem more uh, attentive to the creation of, a, of an autonomous learner. Uh, that is a learner who is not the recipient, but is an active uh, participant uh, in the learning enterprise. A few moments ago, we were speaking about formative assessment. Well, I've written a couple of books on formative assessment. And, and in those books, uh, based on the work of Black and William, I tried to define formative assessment as the use of en route assessment as uh, instruction is taking place. And the results of that are used either by teachers to change their instruction or by learners uh, to alter their learning tactics. That is, uh, students uh, figure out, uh, based on the results of their own learning, uh, whether or not they're proceeding properly. And, and you will discover, I've spent a lot of time in Europe, that our colleagues over there, when they think of formative assessment, Whereas we in the U.S. bang at the teachers making adjustments. Over there, they tend to focus more on the role of formative assessment in helping students take command of their own uh, endeavors. And I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And uh, if when you were speaking with uh, John Hattie, uh, he pushed that same point, I'd not be surprised. Um, he, he's uh, <laughs> from down under, and he talks about So this funny. is the point at which we're going to shift into Q&A. Um, I can keep asking questions if um, nobody in the audience has a question. But if you're in the audience and you have a question, you can post it in the chat. Um, or you can raise your virtual hand. That's the third icon over in the participant box. It's a hand, and your hand will go up. And it will give you the microphone, and you can ask Jim a question. Jim, is there anything I haven't touched on not having read the new book, that you would like to describe as a part of the, your thinking? <laughs> oh, my general pleasantness as a person. I don't think you've been strong enough there, uh, Steve. But beyond that, no, I think you, I, I, I compliment you for touching the important uh, points in the books you have read. You must read the new book now. Uh, Porter wants uh, to make sure she knows the rigor name of to the that new endeavor. book. Uh, Porter, it is called Evaluating America's Teachers, colon, Mission Possible, question mark, and Corwin oh, publishes um, it, and I just uh, saw my first Jimmy copy. wants to know, who is developing the Common Core Standards? Do, do you know a good answer to that? I, I should, but I don't. Well, it's interesting. The this is Jenny who asked that. Uh, uh, let me be candid with you, Jenny, uh, since it's being recorded. Uh, there was a fair amount of mystery regarding who developed the Common Core State Standards. A very small group uh, with relatively modest involvement from externals and almost no serious vetting of what they were coming up with they created the Common Core State Standards. And they're pretty good. Uh, I don't question that. 
Um, but I would have felt much more comfortable had they involved uh, other uh, content competent uh, associations offering their advice and so on. Not everyone would have agreed in the final analysis we'd come up with something I think better. And so during the time when they were actually being developed, I really tried to find out who's going on, what, 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 who's behind all this stuff. And it was almost impossible to find out. Now, and I say that in, in, in one of the books I wrote recently. Uh, and that was bothersome to me. It was, it was a secret game. And, and yet, uh, uh, my compliments to them, because despite this, they got so many states to agree. And on balance, the common core state standards, the curricular aims embodied in those content standards, are, I think, better than uh, many states had uh, in, in operation at the time. And, and so I get, uh, gave them all sorts of credit. Now, the question is not what the common core state standards are. They're out there now. But there are two assessment consortia that have been set up, state assessment consortia, uh, two groups, uh, one the Smarter Balanced Assessment Consortium and the other the Park Assessment Consortium. Roughly each of them have 20 to 25 states. And they're producing assessments to measure students' mastery of the Common Core. That's where the action is. Uh, you, you have curricular aims, and that's talk. You have measures, you have and assessments, how do you, want you have to tests, know How do you reality. think we can best get the information out there about those 15 or so things all teachers and parents should know about testing? I'm, you know, Henry, uh, I think what you do is you, you come up with a bat and you take as many swings at the ball as you can. And I have tried in so many ways to get assessment literacy promoted. Hell, I've written books for parents. I've written books for um, uh, teachers, for administrators. I've, I've written books for people who have recently died and have been interred. I, I am eager to get the message out there. And, and one of the things I'm doing in May is to talk to my colleagues in the National Assessment Governing Board, encouraging them, working with the federal government to promote assessment literacy in a, in a meaningful manner. I think a lot of organizations need to let uh, educators, parents, uh, policymakers in particular understand about the fundamentals, not the exotic stuff, the fundamentals of educational measurement. And I it think can we need really to hard to learn something if somebody is trying to tell you. Whereas when you become involved in the creation of something or are participating actively in a dialogue about it, it takes on new life. Have you seen ways in which schools or districts have involved? parents and teachers and students in such a way as to sort of help them have ownership of this? Steve, truly, I've not, I've not seen it meaningfully. Uh, I, uh, I think you're right. Uh, I think it was, um, there are different ploys that one would utilize when you're trying to get uh, different uh, constituencies and, and involved, and, and you want to use all of them. But one of the things that drives me crazy, educational tests are so darned important uh, to children these days. And, and yet we don't let kids know about these things. We, we let uh, children think that these tests are infallible. I mean, here's an example. 
you've heard a lot of people talk about valid tests. Well, there is no such thing as a valid test. What's valid is the inference that you base on a test score. You get a test score, you look at that score, and you make an inference about what the kid knows. You, you, you can't see inside the kid's head, so you make an inference about what the kid knows based on that test score. And if that inference is accurate, then you have a valid inference. Okay? Uh, it's not the test. And the reason that's so important is once you ascribe validity to the test itself, you say this is a valid test, then you assume that whatever that test produces is accurate. Not so. It's human beings who make judgments about validity. And you know, I this is going to go off the deep end about here, every but, half hour. You know, I wondered as I was reading your material about sort of our culture around schooling and how many of us, how many parents and teachers really think deeply about learning versus meeting requirements and the kind of ways in which school becomes a, almost a ritual. You know, is there a degree to which the, the, the system driving itself uh, and, and people sort of on the outside not feeling like they really impacted has led us to a place where we're not really thinking about learning that much? I suspect you're right, and and, and and let's be let's be candid. In in many quarters, you will hear people talking about the importance of parental involvement in education in the schools. In many schools where I've been, uh, Steve, the the teachers and the administrators would be very happy to get the parents uh, miles away. They don't want anything to do with them. It, it's not the case. Uh, that in fact, uh, you have an, a number of uh, uh, schools that are desperate to have parents involved, uh, and so we I always think there finish is our shows on time as a courtesy to our guests. We have about two minutes left. There were more questions that have come in than I'm going to be able to ask, but I do want to ask Porter's final question. I'll ask too quickly. Uh, Marianne asks first: What do you think about the push by parents to have their children opt out of state assessments? I think if the, the assessments are the wrong kinds of assessments, then a protest is warranted. I'm not sure if opting out is the right way to protest. I'd get on the legislatures, uh, I'd get on the uh, state uh, departments of education and uh, harangue them uh, to come up with better tests. With better tests, opting out is a dumb And note. finally, Porter with asks, tests, what have you seen in the world of testing and measurement recently that excites you? The last time I saw you, Porter, it was a very exciting interchange. And I, I think that's probably about as close as I can come to it. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, Porter is a colleague. We run into each other at occasional meetings. And the truth is, what excites me is the, the possibility, always the possibility of Understanding this stuff better and making better decisions. Uh, that potential. Jim, this has been so a delightful hour. So Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's Jim Popham. My pleasure, Steve. Good Don't work. miss uh, Thursday evening, Andrea Schleicher from the OECD on learning from international data. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Take care now and bye bye. Thank you.